Good afternoon. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Today we have the pleasure of having Reverend Josh Wilson with us. Josh and his wife, Danielle, moved to Manhattan three years ago with their three children. They both teach at the Geneva School in Manhattan. Before becoming a teacher, Josh was a pastor for seven years in Michigan. His teaching ministry has tended to focus on the Old Testament. He graduated from Baptist Bible College in Northeast Pennsylvania and did a, a Master of Arts in Hebrew at the University of Michigan. He's currently a doctoral student at Columbia University. Josh's favorite thing about living in New York City is the great food. His favorite place to go is the Met Museum. His favorite drink is orange juice. And from the last biography, uh, you also love playing the guitar and the bagpipes. Please welcome Reverend Josh Wilson. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcome. I think this is my third time. I know this is my third time to, to be with you. And uh, actually, those kids and wife couldn't be with me today, and they were really disappointed. And they said, this is their favorite place to go that I preach at. So if it ever happens again, I'll make sure they come. Just this summer, uh, our family moved to a new apartment, and um, we don't get any TV reception which is strange, it's in Manhattan. And you would think if anywhere you could get reception, it would be right there where all the stations are. We haven't had cable in years, but with no, at our old apartment, we at least got a couple of local channels. Uh, so my wife and I just last week broke down and decided to get something called Sling TV, which includes just a few essential channels. And I found out a couple of non-essential, but good ones. And I had heard of this HGTV station, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people like, so I decided uh, last week to tune in, thinking it would probably put me to sleep. But it didn't, actually. It was really good, because they had this um, mini-series called A Very Brady Renovation. And I don't know if anyone remembers the Brady Bunch from the 1960s. Good, a couple of people at least. Um, it was... 30-minute sitcom, and it was probably the most well-known family, but also the most well-known house on television. 
And so uh, I was enthralled by this show on HGTV because what they were doing was uh, taking the house that would appear from the outside and they were transforming it so that the inside matched what was on TV because of course uh, the inside was really a set in California. It wasn't the real set. And so if you go inside the house, it's totally different. And so they had to do a little bit to the outside, take down a fence and paint it and things like that. But the real challenge was the inside because it is a split level from the inside. But for whatever reason, the actual um, stage in California, it showed a full two-level house. And it's a huge house on the inside. But the outside is pretty small. And so I watched as they tore down, I mean, they gutted the whole house. They had to figure out how to add rooms without having them show from the outside. It must have been a multi-million dollar project. But now you can go to the Brady Bunch house. Like, you can see it from the outside, and you can walk in, and you're actually in the house. And so I was thinking about that. That's a great uh, sort of way to think about the topic of renewal, which is uh, what I'd like to talk about today, and I think what you're church has, has been talking about a little bit as well. Um, you know, it's easy, relatively easy, to renew from the outside, right? It's easy to renew things externally. It's much harder to achieve actual renewal, the kind that matters. Uh, remember that psalm that says, uh, uh, David says, God, you desire truth in my inmost part. We can reform on the outside. We can renew on the outside with relative ease. But the real work of renewal, heart renewal that matters, character renewal, is much harder than knocking down walls and putting up staircases. It is the work of a lifetime. And you, what you just heard here in 2 Corinthians, I think, reveals three truths about how renewal works and how it looks. And that's what we'll talk about today. And the first one is sort of hidden, but we'll draw it out, and it's this. Renewal happens through community. Renewal happens through community. If you look back at the first three verses, and if you have your Bible, you can do that, you might notice all of the pronouns that say we or us. Scattered all through these first three verses. And what Paul is doing here uh, is he's talking about how he operated as he went to different churches. And his point is, um, we didn't dress up the message. We didn't complicate it. We presented it plainly. In other words, we presented with transparency. But the point is that what he's doing as he, he's using these pronouns is he's thinking not in terms of just himself. He's thinking in terms of even a little evangelistic community as he travels. And I believe he wants the Corinthians to catch this as well that he's not thinking just about himself, that he's even in his description here emphasizing the importance of us instead of simply me. And I actually think this is really a challenge. It's a challenge for me, but I don't think it's just, a, just one for me. I think it's a cultural challenge for us nowadays because I think maybe we're tempted to think of two kinds of renewal, personal renewal and community renewal, and as though those two things can be separated. And I would say that our culture tends to think more personal about almost everything. Think of all, I just tried to come up with a few examples. Personal finances, personal opinion, personal trainer, personal checking account. Maybe you've heard it's not personal, it's business. 
Well, in the Bible, it's not personal, it's community. And think of the Psalms. Uh, this has happened to me several times. I've been reading the Psalms a lot lately. And uh, especially the Psalms of David, they do tend to be very personal. But almost all of them, if you read to the end, they end with some kind of call to the community as though the whole point has been, see how this benefits the community. The real goal here is that this happens in the community. Even Psalm 51, which you might know as David's confession after his sin with Bathsheba, which is incredibly personal. Sometimes I wonder if David ever dreamed that you know, millions of people would read this. It's so personal. But you know what actually ends with this? Do good to Zion in your pleasure, and burnt offerings will be offered on your altar. Sometimes it actually bothers me, because I can track with David through the whole psalm, but then I get to the end of some of these, and I think, I mean, they're almost hard to, to preach on, because they seem to be emphasizing something that feels unfamiliar and almost unimportant. But it goes right into the New Testament as well, when we think about the emphasis on community. Um, you know, I was reminded this week, where I teach at Geneva School, uh, our students perform in chapel, and my class, which is the oldest class in the school, we decided to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And uh, as we did so, I realized again that the Lord's Prayer starts with our Father who art in heaven. And it says, forgive us our debts. Not my Father in heaven. And not forgive me my debts, even though when I pray the Lord's Prayer, it's often myself. Even the language is trying to take me out of myself and think in terms of a community. Think about the book of Ephesians. It's all about a community of believers and how they fit together and work together. James is about the ideal community, how it operates, with emphasis on those who are marginalized. And we could go on and on, including here, uh, which we just saw the pronouns in First, uh, 2 Corinthians 4. So one of the cultural hurdles I think we have to overcome is thinking of ourselves as outside of a community. And I think, you know, since we've my family has only lived in New York a couple of years, I um, maybe have a more keen sense of how difficult thinking communally can be, at least for us. Things like, in New York, busyness, competition, stress, have possibly, I think, a tendency to cause us to be isolated. In other words, after a long day, the last thing I want to do sometimes is to do anything community-related. I want to hold myself up in my apartment and just be in a place that's quiet. Luckily, I have a wife who brings me out of that and uh, plans a lot of stuff for us to do because I need that. Um, but, you know, it's also true that these stresses can push us into community because we so badly need it. We so badly need the community of people who can help us think through stressful things, think through where our priorities are if we're uh, caught up in competition. Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one, one man sharpens another. You know, the fact is we're being formed by some community. You know, everybody here represents different places of work, different places of influence, different clubs, all of these different communities. So we are being formed. This is how formation happens. And one thing to think about today is, what community are you being formed by the most, and how are you being formed? Secondly, renewal happens through humility. Renewal happens through humility. The Corinthians probably looked around and asked, why, Paul, if this gospel is true, why is it that our 
church doesn't have a lot more people in it. We have reason to think the church in Corinth, I mean, Corinth was a huge city in its day, uh, but it was a relatively small community. And Paul says, in part, his answer is, um, I mean, w- one of their accusations is, Paul, your gospel is veiled. He says, your gospel is veiled. In other words, it's covered, it's hidden. And what he seems to be implying there is that um, he has made it complicated or convoluted. It's as though he's taking something that should be simple and he's making it really confusing. And Paul says, no, I just told you, we have a transparent ministry. But he says, look, even if it is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? He's saying, even if it's hidden, it's hidden from those who are perishing. And what I believe he's saying is that the gospel is not rejected because it's hard to understand. It's not, if if people are rejecting gospel, it's not because it's complicated and overly difficult, they can't wrap their minds around it. It's rejected because it's hard to accept. And uh, the best way I could think to illustrate this, I kept coming back to this illustration, but um, the best way I could think to illustrate the fact that facts can be rejected, facts can be rejected, not because they're wrong, but because they're undesirable. Uh, So there's this video on YouTube and it's called, uh, you can actually look it up probably in, later, but it's called a millennial job interview. And I need to say first that by some counts, I actually am a millennial. You know, I'm kind of on the end of that. And several of my really good friends are millennials. So this isn't about that at all. It's just a good illustration. Uh, but in the video, uh, the girl goes in and she's having a conversation with her possible future boss. And one of the things he says is, If you work here, work starts at uh, usually around 8 a.m. And she says, what what do you mean? And he says, well, we usually start about 8. And she says, I don't understand. And he said, well, we try to get an early start here. And so we begin work at 8. And she goes on to explain that she usually gets up at 9.30 and gets Starbucks at 10.45 and then can begin work usually by 11.15. And so he just kind of looks at her like, I don't know what to say to that. (laughs) But if you think about what she's saying when she says, I don't understand the words that you said, there's nothing complicated about work starts at eight, right? What she was really saying is, I don't accept that. And that, I think, actually, even though it's a weird illustration, that actually illustrates what I think Paul is referring to here that it's not an intellectual acceptance of the gospel, that there's an emotional component to it, that there is a spiritual component and not just an intellectual component to the gospel. The point is that accepting the gospel is not a personal intellectual accomplishment. In other words, nobody in the church of Corinth could say, I'm here because I have the brain power to understand this message. And the problem with other people is that they just can't figure it out. It's amazing that the gospel takes that element out of it completely simply because it isn't complicated to understand. And so we have the work of God, the Holy Spirit, actually, to thank for our acceptance of the gospel. And what does this do? It does a couple things, but one of the really important things it does is it brings to a community humility. It levels the playing field because it means that if we can claim to be believers in the message of the gospel, that it's through the work of the Spirit enlightening us so that we can have the eyes to see that. And it gives us a, should give us a level of humility in community and even to those outside community as well. And community is a key 
to humility is a key to renewal. The reason I think humility is a key to cultural and community renewal is, um, I think, best illustrated by a portion of mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis talks about, I think, probably one of the most important chapters he ever wrote is about pride. And no one can say it quite like he does. Listen as I read uh, his thoughts about pride to how pride can destroy humility on the one hand uh, and therefore destroy community, but how humility can enhance uh, community. He writes this. In fact, if you want to find out how proud uh, you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove in their oar or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. The Christians are right. It's pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other, vo- other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness around drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. I think it's clear from this quote that the greatest threat to community is pride. The good news is that the greatest threat to pride is the gospel, rightly understood. It brings humility, and it creates soil in a community that will allow it to thrive. Renewal through humility. Thirdly and finally, renewal through adoration. If we look back here at verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. At the heart of the gospel, as Paul describes it here, are several paradoxes about Jesus Christ. But to catch this, we have to not miss what he's alluding to when he uses the term veil, uh, as we've mentioned. This is definitely a reference to a passage in the book of Exodus uh, after Moses uh, delivers the Ten Commandments. It says that he goes up onto the mountain. Only Moses is allowed to go to the top of Mount Sinai. And when he receives the Ten Commandments, he's been in God's presence, and he comes down the mountain, and uh, it says something really strange. It says that he's Well, actually, the Hebrew word is shiny. It makes me think of that crab from Moana. 
that sings the song about being shiny. Any parents have probably heard that way too many times. But it's something like that, like he's bright. He's actually literally radiant to the point where the people say, uh, you know, you've got to cover yourself up somehow because we don't like being in your presence. It's a very strange passage. Uh, and so Moses does, and so he wears a veil. And Paul is drawing on this image, and now he's saying that glory, that trigger that you just, you know, oh, that's talking about that story, and we know the story about the shiny Moses. And, and he's saying now we see that not in Moses, but we see that in Christ. But he doesn't just say in Christ, he says in the face of Christ. And I wrestled with this. What does that mean? Uh, sure, it's an allusion to the face specifically of Moses, which was radiant. But in what sense? I mean, Jesus wasn't, you know, uh, uh, radiant like that, uh, except for maybe one occasion. Most of the time, he just looked, you know, normal. And so what does it mean uh, to say that uh, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Christ? There's a, a pastor author named John Piper who's written tons of books. And I have to confess, I've only read, read like two of them. But his most recent is um, called uh, A Peculiar Glory. A Peculiar Glory. And he says, um, and I think he's right, that uh, the mark of someone who has come to accept and believe the gospel uh, is that they see in the person of Christ, we could say in the face of Christ, a peculiar glory. And the reason it's a peculiar glory is because it's marked by paradox. Okay? So, for example, we see that Jesus is the wisest of all mankind. And we see his wisdom over and over. People are dumbfounded by it. They're speechless when they come up to it. They follow him, not just because they get food. Uh, sometimes that's true, but because of his wisdom. But he's also the most humble. And we don't see that combination very often in our world. Usually people of greater ability and greater wisdom also are the proudest, or at least oftentimes. But in this case, the wisest is also the most humble. We see that he's the most learned, but he's also the one children are most inclined to come to. Wouldn't it have been an amazing thing to be in the presence of Jesus who could argue with the spiritual lawyers of his day, the Pharisees, people who had the whole Old Testament memorized, who were regarded as being above everybody because of their intellect, and to see Jesus argue with them and make them speechless, and then to go off and have little children come to him and sit on his lap, and that they love to be around him. If you see these kinds of paradoxes, and you see that peculiar glory, then you're getting at what it means to see the radiance of God the Father in the face of Christ. We could say one more. He's the most holy, but he is also the one that you most often see around the most unholy people. Prostitutes, tax collectors, outcasts, people with a physical ailment that makes them not even able to come into the society of other people. And Jesus, even though he is, even in a Levitical sense, you know, the most holy. You know, there are laws in the uh, book of Leviticus that say if somebody has this, uh, uh, like, certain skin disease and they touch you, then you're unclean for a certain amount of time. But see, what happened with Jesus is that when those people came to him, they became clean. So he wasn't contaminated in a Levitical sense. They were made clean. Um, and we see that he is the most holy, but he is also around the most unholy people. And this is a peculiar glory. It's magnetic. It's beautiful. Jesus wasn't bright and shiny most of the time, but somehow for Paul, 
He is God's glory on display, and we see it in these paradoxes. So how does this relate to renewal through adoration? Okay, so what? So, okay, so you see it, right? That Jesus is the peculiar glory of God, and we love these paradoxes. But what does it have to do with renewal? Well, if you think about it, every group, every little community has these common things that they adore, like Star Trek. I don't know if that's still a thing that people like to watch, but you know, Star Trek, there are Trekkies out there. I mean, there are Star Trek conventions that people go to. Uh, there are comic book conventions. Um, there are Shakespeare enthusiasts that like to get together and talk shop. Um, football fans, right? I mean, there are gonna be millions of them getting together just today. And when these groups get together, what do they do? They talk about the thing they adore, whether it's an episode of Star Trek or whether it's how their team has been doing or what they need to do to do better or some of the lesser known uh, sonnets by Shakespeare and how those are the best ones and how, you know, whatever the case may be, they talk about what they love. You know, God's people have the best fan club ever because the object for adoration is the source of all of the good stuff. It's Jesus Christ himself. You know, with every other group that involves love for something, there's nothing wrong with it, but the praise runs out. Eventually, you're speaking hyperbolically. You want to be able to just praise and praise and praise, but at some point, there's this sense that it's running thin. But with Christ, it never runs out. It fulfills our need to have an object of worship that we can place the full weight of our constant praise, love, and adoration. And it's never too much for Jesus. And anything else, it'd be idolatry. You know, we want that thing that we can praise and give ourselves to holy, pour ourselves into sacrifice for, that it's not idolatry to do so. And the truth is, that's only Jesus Christ. And so renewal, community renewal, happens when a community recognizes that fact. And um, there may be other interests, certainly, but the primary interest is the shared experience of the person of Christ. What he means, what he's done in your life, what he's doing this week, uh, what you're seeing in him. And a spiritual community that isn't emphasizing that is one that is not all that it could be. Renewal through adoration. I want to close by saying that renewal can be painful. And obviously, since renewal is our topic here, we'll close with these verses. At the very end, we'll skip down to verse 16, which we haven't read yet, where we see the word renewal. And there, uh, this is a fairly well-known uh, couple of verses here, but we'll read it again. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles, light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm sure most of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, but probably not many of you have heard of David Brainerd. Edwards greatly admired David Brainerd, and uh, he wrote a biography, Edwards did, uh, about David Brainerd after his uh, fairly untimely death. And the reason I bring up David Brainerd is because he is a perfect picture of these verses, outwardly wasting away and inwardly uh, being renewed day by day. David Brainerd enrolled at Yale University 
but he had to go home because he contracted an illness that caused him to spit blood. And we think it was probably tuberculosis. And when he returned a few years later, Yale was going through some hard times because uh, the preaching of the um, Great Awakening had caused students at Yale to start to question whether their professors really actually accepted the gospel. At this time, as you might know, Yale was a school for aspiring pastors, as most of the Ivy League schools were when they began. And uh, Brainerd agreed when he eventually came back to Yale, uh, he agreed with the students, and he had concerns about their faculty as well. Around this time, the faculty uh, responded by threatening to expel these students, and in the midst of this, Jonathan Edwards was invited to speak uh, on campus. And the faculty assumed Jonathan Edwards would side with him, with them, and rebuke the students, but instead he sided with the students, much to the faculty's chagrin, you know, I'm sure. And the effect of all this on David Brainerd was that he could not finish his studies at Yale. They had to push him out. They decided to push him out. And the reason this was really a problem is because that meant that David Brainerd could not be a pastor in uh, Connecticut or in any other state. Because in order to be a pastor, you had to have graduated from Harvard, Yale, or a school in Europe. That's it. Didn't graduate from Harvard or Yale, or you didn't come from Europe from some school that you graduated from, you couldn't be a pastor. And so David Brainerd responded to this by moving into New Jersey and living among the Delaware Indians. And he dedicated his life, which it turned out was a very short life, to being Jesus to them to teaching them, to translating the book of Psalms for them. And uh, he was actually later given some opportunities to become a pastor, but he decided not to do it because he wanted to retain his ministry among the Delaware Indians. And eventually his health became so bad that he moved into the home of Jonathan Edwards, where Edwards' daughter, Jerusha, took care of him. And after moving there, Brainerd passed away within a year. And uh, there's evidence that Edward's daughter and Brainerd had fallen in love during this time. In fact, Edward's daughter died just a few months later of uh, tuberculosis herself. She was buried next to Brainerd in Northampton, Massachusetts. So if you're ever near Northampton, Massachusetts, you can see their graves together. Now, if I were Jonathan Edwards, I don't think I would have felt inclined to write a biography of David Brainerd, considering he had been responsible for the death of my daughter. That would have been really hard for me, uh, but that's exactly what Jonathan Edwards did. In fact, he stopped a book he was working on, and he wrote this biography, and it has never been out of print. It continues to be read widely. In fact, uh, well, it's called The Life of David Brainerd, if you're interested, and it's had enormous influence on the lives of missionaries. In fact, some consider David Brainerd to be the father of the modern missions movement. People like William Carey, Jim Elliott, and Adoniram Judson all trace their beginnings. I mean, those are three huge names in worldwide missions. Trace it to the influence of David Brainerd. Outwardly, he was wasting away, but inwardly, he was being renewed. Renewal happens through community, it happens through humility, it happens through adoration, and it doesn't happen without trials and difficulties. Be encouraged this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for men like the Apostle Paul, uh, from the lives of people that we read in Scripture, 
the men and women in Hebrews 11 who have their eyes fixed on what is unseen, as Paul says here at the end. Uh, we also thank you for people like David Brainerd and the encouragement it can be to see a life lived out in faith. Father, I pray that you would help us to adjust priorities and that we would think in terms of renewal and uh, how that looks as a community uh, humbly accepts their place under your gospel. Um, it treats one another with uh, love, adores you together, and becomes a winsome picture of the gospel on earth. And uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.